I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast today and have a very special guest on the podcast today. He is a former SNL writer, a Emmy winner, and we're glad to have him from the state of New Jersey, Mr. Alan Swabell. Welcome, Alan. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. So let's dig in a little bit. What's uh, Looking back on your career and the time that has passed, how do you look at your career now compared to maybe when you were looking at it 20 years ago? What sticks out to you when you think about your career? Well, what sticks out is that I've been very fortunate to be able to have, to do this as long as I have and to still keep doing it. The friends that I have... Um, have been really helpful. They're great to work with. I've been very fortunate with my collaborators, starting with Gilda Radner, then all the way through Billy Crystal, Marty Short, Dave Barry, keeps on going. And um, I'm working with Rob Reiner now, who I've done two movies with, and he hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever. So that that's almost a 50-year friendship that we're still not only friends, but working together. It's been a real fun ride. What's been your passion through your career? What was your driving force to kind of go down this road as a creative, as a writer, you know, at a younger age, you know, coming out of school and so forth? I, I just, um, well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I never had a desire to perform. I mean, I, I do keynote speeches. I appear on late night talk shows and I get that out of my system that way. But I always love the puzzle of putting words together and uh, seeing um, what happens, you know, when you put them in a certain order. Ever since I was a little boy, that's just, uh, I, I've always felt that writers are born, not made. And um, I think I'm sort of testimony to that. Where are you from originally and where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, was uh, raised on Long Island. And uh, from there, I went to the University of Buffalo. And uh, if you've ever spent any time in Buffalo, freeze your ass off. <laughs> so yeah. I, I started nurturing or developing this uh, hankering that I had to write jokes. And I'd stay in my dorm room and I'd write jokes and send them into Mad Magazine and uh, The Tonight Show. And Carol Burnett was on the air at the time. And uh, I have somewhere in my office here uh, a binder, all the rejection letters that I got. It's about this thick. All the places that said, uh, no, thank you. But I just kept on doing it. It was just a... Uh, I'm wired that way. And most writers that I know feel exactly the same way, um, that this is what they were meant to do. You know, um, I wake up every day, seven days a week at 530 in the morning, and I start working on whatever it is that I'm working on at the time. And if I run a little dry, I switch to something else that I'm working on. So it's, uh, um, I don't know, it, it, it's just an instinct. It's, um, it, it's, what I have to do, and I think every writer will tell you the same thing. When you said something there about your rejections, obviously, you know, if you're creative and you're coming up, you do get a lot of rejections because you just, you got to be persistent. What 
what would you give, what advice would you give someone to keep going? You know, you said you had that inner drive, that inner passion. And if that person has that inner drive and that passion and knows he's has this creative and the story he wants to tell, what, what keeps you moving forward? And what I think you there's forward? a great amount of arrogance. I think that there's a greater amount of naivete. Uh, and I just think that, hey, I, I know this is good. Or, hey, um, I'm not going to let you tell me that I can't do this. Now, I have run my own shows and I've done movies and Broadway plays and books. And I work with editors and producers all the time. And if there's a good working relationship, um, you know, then there's something creative about it, even in the rejection of it. A lot of times it's bureaucratic. Uh, a lot of times it's a numbers crunch. And so if, if you believe that this is what you do, somebody's going to believe in what you did. There's, I think there's a big crossover in entertainment as well um, of being that starving artist and then actually making money with your art. When did you have that realization when you got some decent amount of money and, hey, you said, hey, I'm in a good position? Well, Another that's another great question. Um, look, out of college, I moved back in with my parents. <clears throat> All my friends, my college friends, come that September, the following September, left for grad schools and med schools and law schools. And I went back to my parents' house. I went back into my old bedroom and I got a job in a delicatessen. And <laughs> uh, that's where I worked during the days. And at night, I would write jokes for stand-up comedians, but that wasn't a living. That was $7 a joke. You, 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 that's not a living. When I got the job, I was lucky enough to be one of the original writers on SNL. And when I looked at the contract, I, I never saw that much money in my life. I mean, we were middle-class people, but n that much money was never paid to me before. And I remember when we started SNL, a lot of the guys that were there when I were there, whether it was Gilda you know, or Al Franken and uh, Chevy, we all used to say, I can't believe they're paying us to do this. You know, there, there was something, um, uh, it was fun and it was an affection for the work. And um, the money was a terrific byproduct of it, mind you, okay? We got apartments for the first time. Everybody was able to afford things, uh, credit cards and whatever that first uh, rush of uh, income was. But to this day, and I've been doing this for quite a while now, uh, I just sold a novel last week. Uh, uh, this would be my 12th book. And I said to my wife, I still can't believe they pay me to do this. And all that means is that you would do this for nothing because this is what we do. Now, the creative part, did anybody in your family, were they artists? Were they creative? Did you maybe got this got this from, this ability to write well from? No, my dad manufactured jewelry. My mom was a housewife. Two sisters and a brother, um, you know, housewives. And uh, my brother went into my father's jewelry business. Now, somewhere maybe in Europe where our ancestors came from, maybe there was a poet or maybe there was some guy who wrote. And my guess is that nobody spoke to him because they thought he was weird. Okay. Mm -hmm. I used to, anytime they were mad at me, they would, uh, my parents would compare me to some guy who's, name I can't even pronounce because there's a lot of in it. And he was like the um, the black sheep and he was the um, the quote unquote creative guy. Maybe I got that gene, but I couldn't even tell you where it is on the lineage of stuff. You have any stories about Chevy Chase that may stand out while working with him? 
Uh, Chevy, when I started, when we started the show, there were three people that uh, were like my triumvirate when it came to, you, you understand that um, I was an apprentice writer. Um, when Lorne found me, there were three apprentice writers, me, Al Franken, and his partner, Tom Davis. And what did that mean? That meant that they got some sort of dispensation from the Writers Guild where we were allowed to be paid less than scale for these six or seven shows that the, uh, the, the network had committed to being on the air. And if the show is going to keep us at that point, we got bumped up to whatever the minimum wage was. Um, so I was there learning and I was there looking around and contributing and insinuating myself into as many uh, meetings with the big guys. And the big guys were Lorne, Chevy, and a guy named Michael O'Donoghue, who had founded the National Lampoon. And um, I wrote a lot of Chevy stuff. I wrote um, a lot of the Weekend Update thing. Because I was a joke writer prior to getting to SNL, writing for those Catskill guys, and he knew, and Lorne knew he was going to have Weekend Update. That was a natural place for me to gravitate as I was learning how to write sketches and other things. Uh, Chevy was really good to me. Chevy was um, was really good to me. He validated me. And, um, you know, I, I know that there are these stories uh, on these other things that are not so complimentary, but that wasn't my experience with him. Mine was good. As a matter of fact, I saw him at a play reading here in New York about a month ago. It was a play written by a mutual friend, so a lot of people came to see it. And I hadn't seen him in a while, and it was really good to see him. You were talking about comedy and being a joke writer. How do you think comedy has evolved? Because I think, you know, when I talked to um, Mark Schiff uh, on a previous podcast, talking about comedy and how, you know, relatability, right? He said he would write for universal relatability, right? And to now you have... Some comedians have a more fixated relatability with their audience. Do you see a difference in the evolution of comedy from, you know, from where you started and now? For me, look, when I started, it was about jokes. Set up, punchline. Set up, punchline. That's what the Catskill comedians, the last of the great ones just died the other day, a guy named Freddie Roman. It was all, when I would write for a guy like that, it was all about one-liners. And then somewhere in the 70s, what happened was they became storytellers. David Steinberg, Robert Klein, you know, um, Lily Tomlin, characters and stories that have jokes embedded in it. Um, through the, the evolution, I, I think that when you create a character and you write for it on stage, uh, it doesn't have to be joke oriented. I think the relatability is that there's a real person there, even if it's a character that you create. As long as you're consistent with that character. When I wrote, when I co-created uh, It's Gary Shandling's show, Gary was. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Specific character, and we wrote for that character. And as long as the audience buys into who you're presenting and you're consistent with it, you can really take them anywhere. Uh, as far as comedy today is concerned, I, I think that um, it's going through a stage right now that's um, a little strange, a little antiseptic. I think that the whole woke thing is the death of comedy, quite frankly. It's to be fun that we all made fun of each other and then you went for lunch afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. um, now it is, um, it's a lot of thin ice you're walking on. And uh, that's uh, comedy should be unbridled. You know, you go back, you look at um, Jonathan Swift, uh, uh, more recently Monty Python. It was it was all about punching up, whether it was the queen or the church or whatever, and and making fun of people. But it was good natured, and um, we all laughed. So mm-hmm. right now, I think it's trying to um, become something that it isn't. Yeah. It's, be- it's trying to become something that I believe should not be. I think I think that I don't know. I have a little bit of a theory about that. I think that you know, uh, I think through perpetuation of time, we've society and the makeups of society has created these fractional keeps creating these fractional opportunities, right? When I say fractional opportunities, it's if you had one sensitivity, right, based on how you grew up in society ten years ago. Today, that same sensitivity may be split 10 times. And I don't think people are able to handle things like they were used to be able to handle things because of technology. Yeah, I'm sorry. Does it make sense? Well, I don't know. it certainly makes sense. Uh, but I, there's, there's another thing that's going on here because I think I, I agree with everything you just said, including the technology of it. If you go back, go back, if, if you're going to use technology, go on YouTube, look at the Rat Pack. My God, most racist stuff in the world, okay? But it was five, six guys having fun with each other and as off-putting as it feels. And eat myself, I'll look and I'll go, holy, can't believe they did that, you know? <clears throat> but you knew that the guys liked each other, okay? And whether you like their sense of humor or not, you, you saw that nobody was getting hurt by it because... It stayed within the little family. I, I, I think what we're dealing with now are um, people who um, all of a sudden are, are self-appointed censors. You know, it's usually not the people who you've made the joke about that are offended. It's other people who tell you they will be offended. Now, that's a blanket statement, and we can mm-hmm. go issue by issue. And it's, it, 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 it doesn't hold up 100% by any means. You know, if I look at some of the stuff that we did on SNL when the show started, things that I wrote, which were fun and popular, they could not be done today. Belushi could not do the Samurai. Mm-hmm. Gilda could not do Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. You, you, you go right down the line, uh, things that audiences tuned in to see because they, they knew it was fun. If anything, there was a little homage being paid. You know, it was not um, meant to be or intended to be racist. Mm-hmm. It was, it, 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 it was, it was fun. Yeah. And I don't remember getting one letter 
from anybody who was offended by the samurai. A one land, you know, offended by, you know, when Gilda portrayed, I wrote a piece, a couple of pieces of way where she was Nadia Komenich, if you remember her, the little Romanian uh, gymnast. Well, you have a choice too, right? You have a choice to, you know, turn that TV on and watch that information. I mean, people want to own everything because it's a me, me, me world, right? They don't have to own everything. You know, they don't have to even turn on that, that channel know. or whatever it is. Nobody's forcing themselves into your house and, you know, and making you sit on the couch in the living room and performing stuff that is offensive to you. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. So um, I've got a lot of comedian friends and um, an audience will show up and will be offended by something they say. And you go, well, wait a second. What did you expect? You know what that guy or that woman's reputation is. You know what they talk about. I think we as audiences have become a little constipated, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I look at it like this. Nobody was anything until they made the word, right? Nobody was racist. Nobody, you know, racism wasn't a thing until they made the word. And, you know, when you start taking ownership of things that are defined that we created, I don't know. That's a little, that's a little deeper, but I think we have to think like that or, you know, how do we get back to making things a little more simple? Uh, well, the know? hope would be is that the pendulum will come back towards the middle somewhere. Okay. Um, you know, granted, uh, if there are things that were and still are offensive, I get it. Let's loosen up a little bit. And, and, and what are we doing? You, you know, something you said earlier is, is, is very, very true. When you say fragmented, one of the few things in life is comedy that unites people. Mm -hmm. You go to a movie theater, there's 300 people sitting, looking at the same thing, laughing at the same thing. Um, you go to, uh, we, my wife and I and a couple of other people went to see Louis Black two weeks ago. He was at a theater here in New Jersey, and he's a good friend. Everybody was loved him loved him yes they were big they were lewis black fans mm -hmm. okay so they knew going in that there was going to be an attitude i love that attitude the other people obviously do too yeah. but if you don't don't buy a ticket the mm -hmm. fuck <laughs> don't buy yeah. it no one's telling you you have to go in well why don't you why don't you think creatives talk about the corporations because really that's, you know, the corporations are the one who's, the corporations are the ones who are funding, you know, entertainment, right? And because of their brands, right, they have to find that middle of the road position, right? And that money creates those positions, you know, that money creates the positions within the industry every year because those positions change. Why is there not more of a discussion about that, about how the corporations have control? And, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to hurt their brand, that's what they don't want because they're the ones writing the check. Well, that's another wonderful question that nobody's been asking. What I have found is it also, the inverse also works where if you, the creative, lick your finger and hold it up to the wind, right? And which way is the wind blowing? The corporations themselves, yeah, we, we think of them as strict. We think of them as, yes, being protective of their brand. At the same time, they can loosen up a little bit if what is being done is accepted, mm -hmm. all right? So I think that they err on the side of being too, um, you know, tight and too conservative and, uh, uh, you know, uh, bland, mm -hmm. okay? You know, when I was a boy, when I was growing up and I used, and I thought I wanted to become this, whatever it is, 
this is that I am, I would watch TV shows. I'd watch, there were a lot of variety shows on before SNL came along. It seemed like everybody at one time or another had a variety, Sonny and Cher and Flip Wilson and, you know, Rich Little, everybody had, and I would watch it and I would hear laughing and I'm going, why are people laughing? Even if it was the laugh, okay, Mm -mm. why do they push it? It's not funny, okay? When we started SNL, the only rule we had, uh, Lawrence said, let's make each other laugh, and if we do, we'll put it on television. And he assured us that there was a generation like us, baby boomers, who would find it funny, and it worked, obviously. There, you know, you had RCA back then who owned um, NBC, and as the show started to grow and be, work its way into the culture, counterculture, then the culture, um, they eased up. Mm-hmm. So I think that the corporate mind, they're wired to be uh, naysayers, okay, because you don't offend and it's not going to affect the bottom line of any of these people. It's not going to not buy your car, not mm-hmm. buy your, whatever, your, your TV set, whatever it is you're selling because of it. So I, I, I do think that there's a symbiosis there in terms of what's the chicken, what's the egg. Well, how, do, how does industry push back to some extent? I mean, you know, the guy from who run the guy who runs Spotify, he kind of stood up, you know, for Joe Rogan, and it seems like the platform's been defined. How do you find those positions? How do you get people to have more of a realization? Once again, you know, if you go back, let's go back before that, okay? Let's go back to uh, Lenny Bruce. Let's go back to Richard Pryor. Let's go back to Carlin. Let's go back to the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, okay? Which, if you remember, <clears throat> was on, I think, around the same time Laughing was. <clears throat> it was very political, and uh, it got thrown off the air. CBS pulled it, and I think it was the number one show. Wow. It got pulled up because of its, of its politics. <laughs> All right, so you go, wait a second. That makes no sense. You've got the number one show. Obviously, you have advertisers. Obviously, you have an audience. Why are you pulling it? Um, who are these corporate types? Who are they in bed with? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the tentacles go in different directions in terms uh, of what the affiliations and what the, um, the where the loyalties are. Mm-hmm. I remember, and I forgot his name, and if I remembered it, maybe I'd say it, maybe I wouldn't, but I can't remember his name. I remember... Back, all the way back when I was with SNL, somebody wrote a joke. I want to say it was Michael O'Donoghue, okay? Wrote a joke for Weekend Update about Ronald Reagan. And it was funny, and it got a big laugh in dress rehearsal, which is done in front of a live audience. And a phone call came to the booth saying, you would uh, take that joke. Whoever that guy was, was, was pals with Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan, okay? Now, I know that that's very vague, what I'm saying. I can't remember the joke, can't remember the issue. Um, but once again, it's, um, you know, everyone should be fair game. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, you know, talking about it's a me, me, me world and people taking ownership to things they don't need to take ownership for, do you think that happens internally? I mean, with some of these these uh media and entertainment companies. I mean, if you have someone that has a thought process, right, and they have that control or that power, right, to put a narrative out there, you think they, a lot of people put the me, me, me out there with what their thought process is? I think so. I think that there's a lot of ego. 
uh, just like there is in any corporate structure. I think that um, sometimes people, no matter what corporation, feel they have to be contrary uh, because if they went along with the group, well, why do we need you? Every Three other people saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so they think that they have to um, be contrary so that there is another point of view so they could be heard in whatever. So it, it's hard to have a single arbiter when it comes to taste, when it comes to anything that um, that is, I hate this expression, politically correct or incorrect. But what's the tail? What's the do- what's wagging what? And and if so, if if the objective of the corporation is to get an audience or to get sales, um, and people are flocking to it, they'll lower the bar a little bit. Mm-hmm. This is a little. A switch. Let's talk about authenticity. I reverse engineer a lot of things. Pretty much everything I do It's like this podcast. I want to interview somebody from the ground up instead of from the top down, you know, and it's like unearthing who that is. And when you talk about authenticity and you're dealing with a creative, you know, certain creatives have a stronger position than others. And if your work, you could, let's say you come up with an idea, right? And then the producers get involved. How stern were you sticking to some of your narratives and word tracks with producers that like to dilute narrative? It may take away from authenticity. It depends what um, medium you're talking about. I became a TV producer, so I would be able to protect my writing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, If this character should be an Amish farmer, don't tell me it's funny or if it's an Irish fireman. I know what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, in the movies, it's the director. Um, you know, anything I've written for Broadway, there's a, um, you know, look, if you look at authenticity, there's another aspect to it. If you're working with another creative person, then you have a situation where there's a synergy. One and one equals, equals three. So I remember whether it be Billy Crystal or in particular Gary Shanley, because I worked with him for four years on our show. I would write something for Gary. Gary would not want to do it. He felt uncomfortable saying it. So I would then say to him, all right, listen, this is the reason I wrote that speech. I wrote that line. If you agree with the reasoning, let's figure out another way of saying it that you're more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-pronged thing, okay? It's just not this gratuitous line. You need to uh, make that uh, acknowledgement. You've got, you need to, as a person who wants to be taken seriously, you have to hit that beat and then we'll have a joke about it. Oh, you agree that, okay, you agree that we have to hit that beat. All right, let's, let's write a different joke. So you put the ego over here. So Mm -hmm. it's about the work and that's the best kind of collaboration that there is, is when it's, um, you know, I've always felt that if you're going to collaborate with somebody, I'm going to make up numbers. John, um, 80% of our senses of humor and our senses, sensibilities are the same. That's what draws us to each other. That's why we want to be with each other. But it's the other 20% that's different. What happens then is the alchemy is as such where you and that other person, because of the different 20%, come up with a product that neither one of you could have done alone. Mm-hmm. All right? Um, now, so if that has to do with... If you write a movie and you are not, at best, your vice president, it's the director's medium. So if the director looks at something you've written and wants to take it this way, have it said this way, re- rewritten this way, 
if you've got a creative kind of relationship, you have the discussion I just mentioned. But still, uh, the rule is it's your movie. Mm -hmm. It's not my movie, even though I conceived it and wrote it. It's just the rule. When you when you said ego, right? I mean uh, that that should be a uh, what you just what you just talked about should be a very big lesson if you're listening out there. Uh, if you're in the creative space, is if you find a a group of people, right? And you're working together. You may not agree on everything, but if you're that work together is having success, you better stick with it because when that ego puts you out on that limb, seems like then that's when people may lose success quicker than when they got away from that team. Absolutely. It got away, they got away from the team and they got away from the thing that uh, made them successful or made them heard or embraced to begin with. Mm-hmm. There was something genuine about it. It was about the work. Mm-hmm. And here's a, here's another little something I think about is, is when you, you've had some success, you made some money, right? And you had a run. Let's say if you had your run at Saturday Night Live and that run is coming to an end, <clears throat> obviously that doesn't feel too good because you are obviously looking for the next thing. How did you deal with that? And how did you move to the next thing? Did you ever feel like, hey, I may not get a next thing? Oh, I got married. We had a kid and I got nervous. And don't forget, you know, with SNL, you hit, hit a home run the first time up at bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I started writing books, started writing plays. And then I got a phone call asking me if I knew who Gary Shandling was. And Gary cre- and I created a show together, you mm-hmm. know, when when I when I was in a bit of um, a fallow period, my, my friend Larry David uh, gave me a gig on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And that got me back on my feet again. You know, um, once again, it's um, uh, I've had a lot of really good runs and I've been very, very fortunate to it. There are a lot of awards. There's a lot of accolades. But the creative part of you never sits down and goes, I got five Emmy Awards. Um, This phone is never going to stop ringing. Horseshit. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. You got to say, you got to, you got to give people a reason to give you a call. You got to give people a reason to say, Hey, I want to be in his play. You know, um, like I said, I've written 11 books. I just sold the 12th one. Some of the books that I wrote, I co-wrote with Dave Barry, who is a Pulitzer prize winning humorist. I approached him years ago. We were at the same function. Um, the Mark Twain, uh, award was given to Steve uh, Martin. Um, I was down there in Washington because I helped Larry David write his speech. Dave gave a speech. And at the after party, I saw Dave and I was always a fan. I went up to him and introduced myself and we'd written four books together. One of which we just sold as a movie we're writing the screenplay for. So there's something about Once again, I keep on mentioning other people. I've written books and things all by myself that have done very well because they're very, very internal. Mm -hmm. A book I wrote called Bunny Bunny, which was about my relationship with Gilda Radner, uh, was a bestseller and became a play. And now they're looking to bring it to Broadway. Um, I could not have written that with somebody else because it was so personal. Mm -hmm. Right. So you look for something else where, all right, it almost becomes social that you look for a partner or a collaborator. So it's um, my friend Billy Crystal always had this expression. You know, you just got to keep rowing. And and, and that's what it is. You know, Mm. Gilda Radner, what what was that passion with her and your relationship? We just made each other laugh a lot. We did. 
you know, we used to say that uh, I brought out the guy in her and she brought out the um, the woman in me. There was something about um, <laughs> we were the same neurotic Jewish people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in different bodies, but we both got each other. So somehow, some way, we just, um, you know, her last um, TV appearance uh, before she passed away was on its Gary Shandling show. Um, and, and it was, um, she got nominated for an, an Emmy Award for that appearance. And, and that was very therapeutic. That was very much about our friendship because she hadn't been on TV in six, seven years because she was sick. Mm -hmm. and, and she says, you, she says, but she said, I got to do your show because my comedy is the only weapon I have against this fucker, meaning the cancer. Mm -hmm. And she said, so I, Bell, can you help me make cancer funny? And which is a, a sentence you don't hear a lot. You know, so um, once again, it's about relationships. Mm -hmm. it, 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 and then the other stuff that's too internal, when I wrote the book and then the play about me and Gilda, I couldn't do that with anyone else because it was personal. It was me. I lived through it. So I had to do it alone. So you look for the other stuff that's um, a little, the collaborative stuff is, is, you know, it's almost like a dinner party. In this recent book, where was the, the recent book, your 12th book you just sold? What? Where was the inspiration? What was that about? And where does your inspiration from that come from? Well, the inspiration came from something that I saw eight years ago. It took me eight years to write it. It's a novel. It would be difficult for me to describe it. I haven't gotten it down to the two or three sentence description yet, but it was something based on something I witnessed when I was on book tour for one of my previous books, you know? And the, the book, the most recent book I just had was called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier, which was a cultural memoir. And I had been asked for years to do that. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to say, oh, and then I wrote this and then I wrote that. But when Shandling died, see, when Gilda died, I'd written Bunny Bunny. The writers are lucky. You're able to revisit time and relationship and old feelings. And, and there's a catharsis to it. I didn't have that with Gary. I didn't have that with Gary. And so when I found the emotional tug in what he and I went through and those feelings, I said, okay. So I did. And like I said, my life helping funny people be funnier. It's all about Eric Idle and, and, and Steve Martin and, and collaborations with all these people over 50 years of time. Mm -hmm. Now, do you, do you department departmentalize your, your thoughts? Cause I'm a, sometimes I'm like that. Like if, I can't be very good at something, but I had to take my mind and just focus on that specific thing. And then these two other things I may be very proficient at, I completely forget about. Do you do something like that to kind of oh, stay yeah. in that vein? It's like when you go to the gym, you know, you don't do the same routine, or at least we're not supposed to do the same routine. It's, it's different muscles, right? So if I'm working on a film script, which is 120 pages that you have to fill up, I, um, I'll wake up early, I'll go into my office and I'll start writing. And if I get to a point where I'm going, gee, I don't, I don't, I don't really have it today. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but to keep my discipline up, then I'll write the three page, uh, article for the New Yorker. So it's mm -hmm. using different muscles. And, you know, mm -hmm. just like people say they get their best ideas in a shower, they get their best, you know, it's when you're thinking or doing something else. So, you know, you're still churning out pages, you're keeping your discipline going. And somehow the relaxation of that part of the brain where you were stuck earlier, um, out of nowhere, something will emerge. It, mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, Neil Simon, the great American playwright, 
many years ago, I want to say 1979, and the only reason I think I know the year is because that's the year I got married, and I had my wife read this article so she would know what she was getting herself into. He wrote an article for the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Sunday Times, where he described the comedy writer as a two-headed monster. One head goes through life, goes to a dentist, gets stuck in traffic, goes to an ATM, right? Mm -hmm. And then without provocation or announcement, another head will emerge and hover over the first head and mm -hmm. make fun of the life that he's living. Mm -hmm. And I, I firmly believe that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've uh, alluded to what Neil Simon said many, many times, and other writers will, will nod. And it's, um, it's bifurcated in a way. You live and you comment on how you're living, what you're living, what you're feeling. And how about Steve Martin? It seems like his demeanor, he had two different tracks. Was he, was he like that in real time with you? Well, you know something. He's a very serious guy, mm -hmm. but look at um, look at the output. Look at the banjo. Look at his stand up. Look at his movies. Look at his written pieces. Look at all his books. Look at his plays. Okay, yeah, he makes me laugh, and we're not close, but we like each other. We don't see each other a lot. Um, he's working with Marty Short now on that show, and Marty's become a very close friend. Um, but here you've got such a, a trove, a treasure trove of all of this stuff that um, he has put out into the world. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows more about art than anybody I've ever met. And we've been on here a minute. It's been a great conversation. And I love the history and love just kind of diving into your mind and getting your thought process. Because I think we need to get back to those types of celebrations, you know, to some extent, and give things a little more value. Talking about your family, you obviously married wife, kids, you have kids. I mean, married two days ago was our 43rd anniversary. We have three kids and five grandchildren. Really lucky both ends of my life. You know, I, I, mm -hmm. I always wanted a family and I've always wanted a career. The fact that I met my wife, uh, she was working at Saturday Night Live when I was there. She was a production assistant. She joined us the third year we were there. She sort of got a a bird's eye view of what it might be like. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what this, and um, she's the greatest asset I have. She's my pal. And um, she makes me laugh to this very day. Uh, so I've been, when you said at the very beginning, when you look back, I go, boy, you know, Mike Nichols used to have this expression when you I'd say, Hey Mike, how you doing? He said, well, not bad when you consider the odds. And I, I, I think that, I, I, I've defied a lot of odds, a lot of long odds with this career and with this family. And um, so when I look back, when I say I'm grateful, uh, I sincerely mean it. And, you know, you probably got to give yourself a little more credit, too. I'm, I know there's a, you know, to pull off what you've done, there's got to be a lot of intelligence there. And a lot well, of different thought processes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, the, the maybe yeah, I would suspect that there is there's some stuff going on there. Um but you want to know something? Uh, that's for others to say. I've never really analyzed it. But there are times where you'll go, holy shit, did that come out of me? <laughs> you know? So yeah. at certain times you let the guard down and you go, that wasn't bad. You know? So yeah. 
Nice. Well, you know, I don't know if there's anything else we wanted needed to cover or anything else you want to talk about, but I think we've got some great learning points and hopefully this can be some evergreen content to teach somebody some stuff. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And uh, if you have anything else you want to ask, you know, my number, this has been a pleasure. This is, this has been really fun for me. Nice. So I really enjoyed it. And um, I want to thank the Emmy winning writer, author, producer, Mr. Alan Swabell being on the Unimpressed podcast today. And I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 